Hi, Crossroads. I'm Jessica. Thanks for joining us on the podcast this week. We are now into our fall sermon series, Believing Like Jesus. And the best way for you to connect and engage with the teaching is to participate in a journey group, and it's not too late to join in. Journey groups are going to meet eight times on campus, in homes, workspaces, and online to discuss a weekend message and explore fresh expressions of healthy spirituality. Go to crossroadscolorado.com slash groups for more details and to register for any of our groups or simply check the box on today's Connect card. There's so much happening right now with Crossroads. Keep your eyes on our Gather page. You can check that out at crossroadscolorado.com slash gather. There's lots of links there that you may want to go to later, as well as signing up for our feed e-newsletter. All these resources will help you stay up to date and in the know. And in the show notes, you'll find a link to the weekly connect card. That card is for everyone every time we gather. Regular listeners, you can put your name and email down and check the box regular attender. If you're new to the podcast, give as much information as you feel comfortable sharing and check the box. I'm new here. You can also use this card to request information like the journey groups, sign up for activities or leave comments and prayer requests. This is a great place for you to say, I'm part of the podcast. You know what I would love? If you said, tell Jessica, hi, I am part of the podcast. I would love to know who's here. And by the way, it's not mentioned here in the podcast today, but we are getting ready to launch into planning the Oktoberfest for 2021. It's epic. It's incredible. You can put on the connect card. Tell me more about Oktoberfest. Well, hang on to the card, and by the end of the show, you will probably have more to add. And since you might be listening from your car or you're out on a run or a walk, just remember that you can always come and access these links in the show notes later. Okay, well, here comes Ryan on week two of Believing Like Jesus, and then I will send us out with a few things at the end. Amen. Go ahead and wave at somebody. Give them a big smile. And then have a seat and grab those talk notes if you want to. If you're a guest this morning, so great to have you here inside that program that uh, hopefully you received that maybe one of our room hosts shoved down your throat as you walked in or as you were sitting there, they were walking around. Inside of there are some talk notes. We like to say that the talk notes give us hope that it will end. You just count down the fill-ins, count down the fill-ins. We got a lot to do today because immediately following this, uh, we are celebrating volunteers. And so for those of you that are volunteering here within Crossroads, we're excited to have a lunch together. If you're interested in volunteering, you want to learn more about it, stick around. We have lunch together and we have some extras, but just know that it's not a free lunch. You have to pay for it for about a year. 
of volunteering. So I am honest. I just am going to tell you this is not a free lunch. It's going to cost you some volunteer time, but that's what we're going to do. So uh, we're in episode two uh, of Believing Like Jesus, and uh, we're tackling a big subject today. And my name is Ryan, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here at Crossroads, and it is good to be together. Thank you for tuning in online. If you're watching, thank you for being on the atrium. If you're here in the room, it's good to see you. Am I ringing a little bit out there? No? Yeah? I just hear it. It rings back in my world, and so I don't know if you're hearing it too, but I know they're back there working hard on that. So I appreciate people that know how to run the buttons, right? You know what I'm saying? They know how to run the buttons, so that's good. So hey, listen, today's topic is one that is a little uh, challenging. It's a sensitive topic, and so what I need for everybody to do is just take a breath, Okay, because here's what's going to happen. If you're a church person, if you've been around church for a long time, uh, I'm going to say something today, and you're probably going to want to stop listening. Okay, so here's your challenge. Don't stop listening too soon. Okay, don't stop listening too soon, because I want to talk today about the Bible, the Bible. And this is a, a big topic, because for many of us in the room, the Bible is such a meaningful, we'll call it a book, even though it's not a book, it's a library, it's a collection of writings. But it is, we, 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 you know, in the you know, Middle Ages, we bound it all together and we called it a book. <laughs> but it's, it's a pretty sensitive topic because for many of us, it is so important, it's so meaningful. I know in my life, it's so meaningful. Uh, I, have, I can't tell you a time in my life where the Bible was not central to it. I mean, I have an award in a box somewhere for, for how much the Bible means to me from the American Bible Society that I got in my undergraduate work. Like I won like the outstanding Bible person I, from the American, I have the plaque. I'll take a picture of it and post it on my Facebook account just so you know, right? And I wanna preface that like what I'm gonna say today, the scriptures, what we call our scriptures in, as Christians, what we call the Old Testament, the New Testament, what the Jewish, our Jewish brothers and sisters would call the Jewish Bible, right? The Old Testament. Like this collection is of extraordinary value to me. I've spent my whole life in this. It's been foundational. And so I want everybody to hear that right away, okay? And we're gonna kind of tackle and talk about this subject and I, I'm gonna kind of go fast. So hang in there with me. If you wanna talk afterwards, you wanna talk this week, you have my cell phone number. It's on the website. I'll give it to you right now. 207-608-1106. You want to go have coffee and talk about anything at all, whether you're new, whether you've been here a while, or whether I said something that you were like, what in the world is wrong with him? Just text me and we'll set it up. I'd love to have a conversation. Okay. 207-608-1106. Now for me, I grew up with this phrase given to me about the Bible. I grew up with this phrase that the Bible is my rule for faith and conduct. My rule for faith and conduct. And what that meant was that no matter what I did, I always had to go to the Bible and find out if it was okay, which got tricky when it came time to getting on an airplane. Very problematic. But that's what I was told. I was told, here, listen, this book has been mysteriously and magically given to us from God and everything in it is perfect. There's nothing wrong inside of it. It doesn't have any errors. They used words like inerrant. I didn't know what that meant. I don't think most people do, honestly. <laughs> we, we use words like infallible. I was given this. This is what this is. And there's no book like it in the world. And everything you do needs to run through the framework of this book. And this will tell you whether or not God is happy with you. And this is how you know whether you're in the right lane. This is how you know whether you're going to get to go to heaven or whether you're not. That's what I was given. And really what I've come to learn as I've grown and as I became an adult 
I started to say, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. There's some things that I don't quite get. Like that, that kind of starts to fall apart. And what I kind of realized is that a lot of that language that I was handed really meant that whoever was in charge, whoever was in charge of interpreting the Bible, that they were my rule for faith and conduct. That they were the ones who got to tell me what it actually meant. They were the ones who had the inerrant, infallible understanding of scripture. And if I did what they told me to do, and if I believed the way they told me to believe, and if I lived the way they told me to live, and if I looked the way they told me to look, then all would be good. And that's what I kind of came to learn and understand. And so I've come to this space, I have to put my cards on the table, that I actually think that a lot of that language is extremely dangerous. Because here's the thing, some of us have had very positive experiences. Some of you are like, finally, the first fill-in. We went like seven minutes. We didn't even get one. We're going to be here forever. (laughs) I'm going to give you two really quick. Some of us have had positive, but some of us have had negative experiences. Some of you listening online at home, you're listening online at home because of such a negative, bad experience of a faith community and and the way the scripture was used that to step foot inside of a church would be a traumatic experience. Like not everybody is, I, I for the most part had positive experiences, but that's because I fit into dominant culture. I fit into this Western idea of what it, you should look like and how much money you should have and what your home life should be like, all in that kind of conservative view that I was handed. So I, I didn't really ever have any problem. But then I started to meet people and started to realize, wait a second, the scriptures has contributed to just as much spiritual trauma as it has to spiritual transformation. And and I've come to the conclusion that that when a document, when any person can actually produce that much trauma and that much transformation, that maybe there's some complexity there that we need to think about. That maybe it's not as cut and dry. That maybe the issue isn't the book or the person. Maybe the issue is what we do with that, how we think of it. And this idea of spiritual trauma from scripture is nothing new. In fact, Jesus would actually kind of combat that. In Matthew chapter 23, Jesus is talking to a group of people. And Jesus says, hey, listen, you should definitely listen to the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, but just don't do what they do. Like you should definitely obey what they're teaching, but don't do what they do because what they do is they tie up heavy burdens, things that are hard to carry and they lay them on people's shoulders. That's the Bible way of saying they traumatize people. If you've been through trauma at any level, you know the idea of a burden that's too hard to carry, that's laid upon you, right? So this is the the Bible way of talking about what we would say now as trauma. And then they don't lift a finger to move it. They don't do anything to help. They just kind of keep compiling it on and on. So we should pause and say, this is not anything new. The idea that scripture, what Jesus would call the law and the prophets, would actually and could actually be beautiful. Yes, follow, listen to what they say, but don't do what they do. And so what I wanted to do today was to just look at maybe six or seven things that I think, according to Matthew, Jesus believed about scripture, his scripture, which would have been the law and the prophets. So the law being the Torah, the first five books of what we call the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, the Jewish scriptures, and then the prophets, the prophetic writings that we have, the minor and major prophets, if you're familiar with that language. Those would have been kind of the authoritative texts in Jesus's world. 
And, and it is challenging. Like, I just want to say this, that when we say, what did Jesus believe? We're, we're really at the mercy of people and communities that continued the message of Jesus because Jesus never wrote anything down. So Jesus wasn't like a traditional, like, let's say, philosopher or prophet or rabbi who would write down what they wanted passed on. He didn't do that. And so what we have are interpretations of the life of Jesus, according to's, right? I'll say that often. We have in, in the, the Bible, we have four according to's, one gospel, but it's according to Matthew, according to John and these communities that they would come out of. And so what I wanted to do was look at Matthew's understanding of Jesus and the Jesus that's found in the gospel of Matthew. What might that Jesus have believed? That Jesus who was Jewish, he was Mediterranean, he was a peasant, and he was a prophet for a lot of people in his day. Like that's who he was. So how did he think about his scripture? So we're gonna go really quickly through these. I wanna make sure you get your fill-ins because I know some of you will like totally stress out if there's a fill-in not in there, okay? So you gotta hang in. I gave you the passages of scripture that are kind of examples of where where this comes from. And so I'll mention those, but I would encourage you if you want to dig in to, you can read those on your own. Uh, you can certainly are welcome to send me a text or Google somebody much smarter than me if you want to, to kind of dig into some of those passages. But I want to give you kind of a survey. So we're going to hop around today a bit. So the first thing I want us to recognize is that I think, and this is just, this is just me, okay? This is just me, that Jesus believed his scriptures his, the law and the Torah, what he would have heard read in his synagogue, wherever that synagogue was, uh, the, the things that would have governed his daily life, because there was no separation, remember, for Jesus of like religion and state. It was just one. So they lived by their law. They lived by their scripture. It was the way they organized their community. So I believe that Jesus thought that his scriptures gave strength to the weary, strength to the weary. And I get this from Matthew's version of what we call the temptation of Jesus. This idea that Jesus went out and he fasted in 40 days and nights in the gospel of Matthew and he gets hungry, right? That would do it to you. You know, I get hungry after about four minutes if I don't eat. Jesus, 40 days in this story and he's hungry. So he's weary and he's tired. And the tempter comes and says three temptations. The first one was, hey, listen, if you're the son of God, like here's the deal. Just turn these, sto turn these, these stones into loaves and go ahead and have something to eat. What's the big deal? And Jesus responds, it is written. It is written. And then he, gives, uh, he quotes a passage from his scripture that he had probably heard. So Jesus does this a few times. So Jesus knew that there was something very powerful about these documents. There's something very powerful about these words that in a time of either temptation or weariness or weakness, uh, in a time of woundedness, whatever you want to use, whatever word, that there's, there's strength that's found in his scriptures. Second thing was Jesus believed that his scriptures could be fulfilled, but never abolished. In fact, Matthew believed Jesus was the fulfillment of these scriptures, but Jesus didn't abolish it. And this is a big deal for Matthew because Matthew wants us to understand Jesus as the new Moses. Matthew's writing to a Jewish community. He's establishing and helping them understand that Jesus is one greater than Moses. So that's why in the gospel of Matthew, Jesus actually goes to Egypt and then comes out of Egypt. Jesus doesn't do that in Luke, right? In, in the gospel of Matthew, we have Herod who's trying to kill all the baby boys. Does that sound familiar? Like Pharaoh, if you know that story. What Matthew is establishing is that Jesus is giving us something greater than Moses. And he wants his community to understand that. But he doesn't want his community to think you can just throw away the tradition. 
And so Jesus says this, don't think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That would have been his scriptures. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen. Listen, truly, barely, really, really, really. I'm trying to say this to you until heaven and earth pass away. Not the smallest letter or the smallest part will pass away from the law until all things have taken place. So Jesus is saying, like, I believe that the scriptures are powerful, but they're fulfilled. But that doesn't mean you get rid of them. That doesn't mean they don't have any use for you today. And I think thirdly that Jesus believed that his scriptures were grounded in a covenant and not a contract. Now we're cruising with the fill-ins and you're starting to get a rhythm with me, okay? You're like, we might get through this before kickoff, all right? Covenant, not contract. Now, if you know anything about covenant, there is contract language in a covenant. We see that, but it's more than that. A contract, you just have to kind of fulfill the basic requirements, right? Anybody ever rented a house before? Raise your hand up nice and high. You rented to someone or you rented from someone? Anybody rented? Yeah. You, 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 know, you sign a contract that says, I'll give you this amount of money on the first or the 15th of every month, and you'll let me stay in this house. Now, you can do that begrudgingly, right? You can write that check, and in the memo line, you could put like, this is unbelievable how much you're charging me every month. I cannot believe you would do this. Sign the check and give it to them. And guess what? Your landlord probably doesn't care what you write in the memo line as long as that check comes in every month, right? I was a landlord at one point in time. I'll never do it again. I was not built to be a landlord. Should have never been a landlord. But the bad experience I had, if a tenant wrote the check, I was thrilled. I didn't care what their attitude was. Because it's just a contract, but a covenant is different. A covenant is this mutual understanding one to another, and the covenant language was what grounded Jesus' scriptures and the relationship that his people had with their understanding of God, this Jewish God, Yahweh. So while minimum requirement works well in contract law, in marriage, it's not so good, Right? Like if we just think, well, what is the bare minimum I have to do to keep my spouse from not leaving? Let's call it a day, right? It doesn't work that way. It's a, marriage is a covenant. Yep, there's a contract involved. There's no doubt about it. You have to go get your marriage license and you talk about what this means and how, how we're gonna you make your commitments. But it's more than that, right? If you said, well, you'd ever talk to me. I said, well, what are you talking about? I could we talk for five minutes every day. That's the quota, what more do you want from me? It's not going to work. And so Jesus believed that there was a deep relationship between the God of Israel and Israel and the God of Israel in those scriptures. And scripture was kind of a mediation of that relationship. It was a way in which you put kind of like ink to an understanding of what that covenant was like. And we know that Jesus thought it was more than contract because in the gospel of Matthew, about four or five times, he says, you've heard it said, but I tell you, right? So he says this one, and we know this one, a lot of us do, and so I like this one because it's a big one. He says, you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy, right? That was passed on to him through his scriptures. Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, right? He's saying, well, we gotta, get, we gotta get past the contract idea here of just the minimum following of the law. You've gotta actually love your enemies. And you've gotta pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your heavenly father. For he makes his sun rise on the bad and the good and causes rain to fall on the just and the unjust. In other words, God's love is universal for everyone. Doesn't matter what, how they treat you. Doesn't matter what they believe. God is a universal God pouring love on every person. And so guess what? If you've received that, you are under divine obligation to give it. 
It's not just enough to fulfill this contract. There's a covenant about this. Another thing that Jesus believed, and this is where you're going to tune me out, some of you. So take a breath, okay? Jesus believed humans wrote his scripture. I don't think that Jesus thought or believed that somehow these scriptures came any other way. So for example, we have two kind of encounters where Jesus is encountered by the religious leaders. And one time in Matthew chapter eight, verse four, they say to him, uh, or Jesus actually says, excuse me, Jesus says to a person that he's healed, listen, you need to go and don't tell anybody about me, but show yourself to the priest, right? So he's sending this person to the religious leaders, sending them to the priest. And he says, and go offer the gift that Moses prescribed and that will be proof for them, right? So he's supposed to go and offer the gift. This was in the scriptures. When you have a healing, when something like this happens, you would offer a gift. But I love that he says Moses prescribed it. He doesn't say the gift that God prescribed. He says Moses did this. In Matthew 19, the religious leaders come to Jesus to kind of get him in trouble. They want to test him. They want to trick him. And they say, then why did Moses, he's talking about divorce. And he says, why did Moses command that the man give the woman a bill of divorce and dismiss her? Notice what they say. Why did Moses command? Like the general thought of the day was this was the law of Moses. First and foremost, this came from us. There's a lot of pride in that. We're people of this, this Moses, this law that's been given to us. And I noticed that Jesus doesn't correct them. Jesus doesn't go, whoa, don't you know that the law wasn't given by Moses, but by my father in heaven? How dare you? No, Jesus is like, well, because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses allowed it. <laughs> like Moses was a wise guy. Not a wise guy. That's a totally different thing from Boston. I don't mean it like that. But like Jesus was wise, right? Jesus knew, or excuse me, Moses knew. Jesus was wise too. But Moses, he was wise. He was a great leader. He's trying to establish what he thinks is a faithful community in his time, in his day, in his age. He's looking around and, and he's doing like what all of us would do. If we're in leadership and we're grounded in faith, we would say, I think this is what God's best for me is. I think this is what God's calling me to do. And so he gives this beautiful Moses and then the tradition holds it. So Jesus believed Moses wrote, that the prophets wrote. And here's another thing, that Jesus believed his scriptures were ultimately about finding wisdom and not following rules. Now, if you know anything about Jesus, for the most part, he seems like a terrible rule follower. This was one of the deep frustrations that the religious leaders of his day had with him in the Gospels. The conflict generally arose around what you could and couldn't do according to the Scriptures. And so again, what happens is the religious leaders come in Matthew chapter 12, and they bring a man who has a withered hand. And it's on the Sabbath, and they question him, is it lawful to cure on the Sabbath? Can you do this work on the Sabbath? And they wanted to accuse him, right? There seems like there's no really good answer for that. If he says no, then he's elevated you know, the law above a person. If he says yes, then he's like totally gone against the Mosaic tradition. So what do you do? Well, if you're Jesus, he just asks a question back, right? When they say, is it lawful for you to cure on the Sabbath? He says to them, well, let's think about this. Which one of you, if you have a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? And they'd all go, oh, well, yeah, duh. Like, that's actually in the law. You can do that. Well, so see, Jesus wasn't about like following the letter of the law. This is what you have to do. And then God, no, he's like, listen, there's more to this. There's wise behavior. And so we, he looked at his scriptures and said, let's find some wisdom for circumstances that show up in our everyday normal lives. And let's not be foolish. And then finally, I think Jesus believed that not every scripture 
was of equal importance. Again, this is one that will freak you out, but Jesus didn't think that every, according to Matthew, that every scripture had equal importance. We know this because, again, at one point in time, in Matthew chapter 22, Jesus has this encounter, and he's asked, teacher, which commandment in the law, in the Bible, your Bible, scripture, they wouldn't have used the word Bible, but which commandment in the law is the greatest? And again, Jesus doesn't go, you morons, they're all perfect. They're all perfect. How could I possibly? It's like choosing one of my children to love. Which one do I love most? I love all of them. No, Jesus is like, well, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the greatest commandment. There it is right there. But then Jesus, because he's wise, he's like, you have no idea how to do that. We'll never know how to do that. So here's the deal. The second one is like it, right? In other words, it's the same thing. Love your neighbor as yourself. Everything hinges on that. Everything is an outflow of that. If you want to understand like the reality of the God, it's like that was trying. Jesus is saying, listen, everything in your law is man's best attempt to live out those two commands in their day, in their time, given their circumstances. So all these things that Jesus kind of believed about his scripture lead me to this statement. Okay, so don't miss this. All right. If you fell asleep, wake up, wake up. Okay, here we go. I don't want us to miss this because this is a beautiful word and we should use it. I think that Jesus believed his scriptures by his actions were sacred. They were sacred. And that's a beautiful word that they were for him and for his community sacred. We see it in the way he interacted with them. He didn't throw them out. He never, he never said it was a bad thing that they came from Moses. He wasn't bothered by that. He wasn't bothered by the, the, the fact that there were laws that had been developed and lived out that didn't fully represent God. He wasn't bothered by those things. Why? Because they were their sacred scriptures. It was theirs. The law and the prophets, they were foundational for Jesus's faith. He was first and foremost a Jew. And just like any good Jew in the first century, wouldn't have any framework to throw it out. But these were foundational. The way they saw their interaction with one another, the way they understood how to relate to God came to them through these texts that came to them through their spiritual ancestors. And it was their spiritual ancestors giving their understanding of how they believed deeply that God wanted them to live, that God wanted them to be organized as a community of faith. I think Jesus knew that they weren't perfect. I don't think anybody in, in ancient Judaism ever thought that their scriptures were perfect. That's why they argued about them all the time. I mean, then that's why, you know, in really good, healthy communities of faith, there still is deep arguments. Like within, in Jesus in the first century, you have these, you have a very sectarian reality, these different sects, S-E-C-T-S, like groups within Judaism. There was not one Judaism, there were Judaisms. So you had the Judaism of the Pharisees. You had the Judaism of the Essenes. You had the Judaism of the Sadducees. You eventually had the Judaism of the Christians, <laughs> those that would follow Jesus. With it. And, and, and it was because there was all kinds of lively, vibrant conversation about the mystery of God. And Jesus would have fit right into that. And that's a very Eastern, a certainly both and Mediterranean way of thinking about things. It's, it certainly is not our either or Western world like way of thinking. But it was certainly the way Jesus did. And these texts were sacred to Jesus. I don't think because there was this belief that somehow God mysteriously and magically gave them perfect documents. I think it was because their ancestors had made them sacred. 
that over time, these were the ones that emerged that had the most meaning and they kept them and they were passed on from generation to generation. So in our everyday normal life, if you're trying to live this life of a peacemaker, what does that mean for us with our scriptures, with what Christianity says, these 66 writings, this collection we call the Bible, how should we engage if we want to believe like Jesus? So I think, first of all, this is the big thing. It's like, we should just let the Bible be its authentic self. We should let the Bible be what it is. And that is a human record of how our spiritual ancestors saw things, not necessarily how God sees things. That that's what we're given. We are given this beautiful document from two ancient communities, the Israelites, that dates back maybe 3,000 years from right now, and then the earliest Christian communities that date back from the first and second century. And then our spiritual ancestors leading into the third century, the fourth century, like determined these books have extraordinary value, these writings, and they help us understand how our spiritual ancestors thought about God in relationship to the world. And, and, but we have to see it that way. I don't think that Jesus's belief calls us to have to have some weird understanding of the Bible that actually lends it to being a, a document that gets used to abuse people. So words like infallible and inerrant, which are nowhere in any of the writings of scripture, nowhere. They're pretty actually late words that come from about the 1500s. Like those are words that are used to describe and, and I just don't use those words anymore because I think they're dangerous. I actually do believe in the inerrant, infallible word of God and his name is Jesus. I believe that. And I believe that's a great mystery, and I believe that it's always going to be a struggle to try and understand Jesus. I believe that our best way of understanding Jesus are these early documents that our ancestors said, these are important, <laughs> if you want to get what it's like. But I love the phrase that Paul uses to talk about the message of the gospel. He says it's a treasure in earthen vessels. And I think that that could apply to the scripture that it's an earthen vessel that contains a treasure for us. And Paul, in the second letter to the Corinthians, probably written somewhere you know, 20 years after Jesus died and, and was raised to life, like, he talks about this gospel that was given to us and he calls it a treasure and it was the good news, but it was given in earthen vessels like clay jars. And those were the messengers of the gospel. And I think our spiritual ancestors are messengers of, of how it, what it meant to wrestle with and understand this beautiful, wonderful mystery of God and how to do that in relationship to what we experience in our world. I don't think, that, I don't think it's very healthy for us to say, well, you know, 2,500 years ago, like God just magically said, here's how the whole world works in a scientific way. <laughs> Like God only works in round numbers for the most part. I don't know if you know that, right? Seven seems to be the magic number, right? Everything was seven, you know? Like I just don't, I don't know that that's a healthy way to say something about this text. And it's kind of dishonest because if we say it about our text, don't we have to say it about somebody else's text? Like, I'm all for, I, I like believe in the miraculous reality of our world. Like, I believe that miracles are baked into the universe, but I can't just believe my miracles are. Like, only the visions that come out of Christianity are real. Like, if I say that ours are real, it's, spirit, it's like intellectually dishonest to say that somebody else's isn't. 
Now, I know this is kind of like a little bizarre for some of us, but let me just wade into that water, just get you thinking about it. Does that mean that for some reason, like the texts that we have are not extraordinarily valuable and fun? No, they're extremely valuable. Why is that? Because not only are they human, we affirm that they are holy, that they're holy, that they can both be human and holy, and that, and that as a Christian community, this is how we choose in faith to believe and see and order. But we, but we have to embrace this kind of like tension between human and holy. There's a gentleman named Marcus Borg who wrote a book called Convictions. He wrote this book, I think it was like 2015, maybe a little earlier than that. And Marcus has since passed away, but he was a, a historian, a Jesus scholar. Uh, and he spent his, most of his, like, his professional academic life teaching and studying what is called the historical Jesus, which is somewhere between the real Jesus and the Jesus of faith, <laughs> somewhere in there. And, and he studied this, and he wrote this book towards the end of his life. He had spent a lot of time working both in the academic world, but also in the church parish. His wife was a, is an Episcopal priest. And he spent all of this time kind of exploring, and he said, what, are, what have I come to at this stage in my life to be like fundamental and foundational to what I believe? What are my deepest convictions? And he writes a couple of chapters in this book on scripture, which I'm deeply indebted to because I feel like he put into writing a lot of beautiful things that have been like floating around in my head. But one of the things that he says as he talks about scripture, I just would like to read to you. He says this, he says, even as the positive alternative recognizes that the Bible is a human product, right? So the positive alternative to this thing that like God plopped down in our lives, that's perfect, that has no errors in it, that we then like do all kinds of terrible things with. The positive alternative is that it's a human product, but it also affirms that it is the Holy Bible, that scripture is sacred for Christians. And its status as sacred scripture rests not on its origin from God, not on this faith-filled statement that somehow God gave us a perfect set of documents, but in the decision that was made by our spiritual ancestors, I would say guided by the Holy Spirit, to say that these books are holy, that they're sacred. And so the books of the Bible, he says, they weren't sacred scripture when they were written. Like Paul didn't know he was writing scripture when he wrote a letter to the Corinthians. I'm guessing he probably would have cleaned up his language a bit in the book of Galatians if he knew people were gonna be reading this over and over again. And he's like, I just wish you'd castrate yourself. Go ahead and cut the whole thing off. I got a feeling if he knew that he was writing sacred scripture, he might've toned it down a little bit there. But he didn't know that. Just writing, and it becomes this document that's beautiful and wonderful and offers us inspiration. And I love what, uh, what Marcus says. He says, rather, they become, these texts over a period of time, they become sacred, and they're declared to be sacred. And just as the documents themselves are human products, so is their status as sacred. But this doesn't diminish. We have this idea that somehow that diminishes them. It doesn't. It doesn't. Seeing them as sacred underlines the decisive status for Christians. These are the most important documents we know. They're the most important ones. And their status also becomes their function. They're foundational for Christian understanding and identity. As soon as you don't have the foundational text, you don't have an identity. They're vitally important. And so how do we then come and engage with this Bible and make sure that we submit ourselves to it in a healthy way? And this is what I would say, and then I got to wrap this up. Jesus is the norm of the Bible. 
So just like we talked about last week, right? If Jesus is the interpretive key to life, to everything, then Jesus, the living word of God, (laughs) the living word, the living mind of God, the living universal Christ, the, the embodiment of all that is God in a human being becomes the framework by which we read. So when there's conflict between what the Bible might describe about God and what Jesus represents, I say Jesus is the standard and I understand it and reflect and say something else is going on here. I don't believe that Jesus ever command, or that God ever commanded indiscriminate violence and rape and pillaging of people that were different than the Jews, although that's right there in the Bible. I don't believe that. Why? It's because I don't believe Jesus would ever do that. And my affirmation of Jesus as Lord, <laughs> Jesus as the representation of God, means something's not right here. So let me ask you this question. What kind of a follower of Jesus who has the scripture as a foundational text do you want to be? Do you want to be Batman or do you want to be Spider-Man? Batman or Spider-Man? I know that if Rod Kai is listening, he wants to be Batman, but he would be wrong. (laughs) For those of you that know Rod. Here's what I mean. Like Batman, I heard this wonderful illustration from, from someone at a conference. Batman has his utility belt, right? (laughs) And his utility belt has all kinds of resources for him to do his crime fighting. Batman has no real superpower other than super wealth, (laughs) right? So he invents all these things, but he's got a tool for every situation. He needs to grapple. He needs to get up a building. He's got his grappling hook. He needs to capture somebody who's running away. He's got the like batarang. He's got a tool for every circumstance. And there are Christians that will use the Bible that way. They'll memorize the Bible verse. Oh, I got a Bible verse for those of you that are rich. I got a Bible verse for those of you that are poor. I've got a Bible verse for those of you that are straight. I've got a Bible verse for those of you that are gay. I've got a Bible verse for those of you that are uh, Jewish. I got a Bible verse for those of you that are Muslim. I got a Bible. I got a, I can, and we use it as this tool, right? Or there's, super, or there's Spider-Man, right? Like Spider-Man's a totally different kind of superhero. Like Spider-Man was bit by a spider and it just changed him. He started getting all these kind of like weird powers he didn't really know what to do with. Like, great, I stick to stuff now. That's awesome. <laughs> right, like I can hear things my senses are like, what? like depending upon whether you're a comic book person or the movie person, like he can shoot web things out of his wrists, or I guess the comic book is just he makes things that shoots web things out of his wrists. I don't know. But. So I think there are some Christians that allow the Bible to be like that spider and it just bites them. And it starts to transform them in ways that they really don't know how, but it just does. And it becomes a part of who we are. And it's not a tool that we use against other people. And I think we need more communities of faith, vibrant, life-giving communities of faith that will say, I want the scripture to bite me. I want it to bite me. I want it to change me. I want it to help me interact with this world in a way that makes the world a better place, that makes me a better person. And I think if we'll believe like Jesus did around the Bible, the most powerful thing will happen is that we will disempower spiritually abusive leaders. Because the tool of spiritually abusive leaders is this phrase, well, the Bible says. The Bible says. And I want, (laughs) I want more than anything for you 
especially those of you that have gone through spiritual abuse, that you've been at a space where someone has used the Bible verse to tell you that you're not worthy, that someone has used the Bible verse to tell you that you are not fearfully and wonderfully made, that someone has used the Bible verse to tell you that unless you don't, you can't belong. Unless you are this, then unless you do this, like whatever that might look like, here's what I want for you is that that never happens again. And the only way I know to do that is to believe like Jesus did about his scriptures, about ours. That when somebody wants to tell you, well, the Bible says, you can go, oh yeah, okay, cool, great. What does that have to do with me? It's a good question to ask. Maybe it has nothing to do with you. Maybe it has a lot to do with you. But I have people come to me all the time that might live in a different world. They say, well, the Bible says, what does the Bible say about this? And I always say, well, first of all, why does that matter? Like, can we first ask another question? Like, is this wise? Is this loving? Does this counteract love in our world? Like, maybe there's some bigger questions besides, well, what does the Bible say as our starting point? And I know that's really scary, really scary. It's not to say that we don't ask what the Bible says, but we understand just because the Bible says something, that doesn't mean that it represents God well. Because I can show you all the verses that have been used to justify violence against women, against the queer community, that upheld slavery for decades. I can show you all those Bible verses. And so our history now tells us we know better than to just start with that question. And I think that's what's behind Jesus in Matthew 23, when he says, don't let anybody call you rabbi. You got one teacher. You're all brothers and sisters, right? Called nobody on earth your father. You've got but one father in heaven. Don't be called master. You have but one master, the Messiah. This is what Matthew's getting at. Like this community's got to be flattened out. (laughs) You can't do this. Like the presumption is that Matthew's community was doing this, was calling one another, was elevating people. He says, the greatest among you must be a servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And so I think that we can actually be people who will never, ever let anyone abuse us spiritually with the Bible if we'll believe it like Jesus did. I shouldn't have that authority in your life. If you're in a small group, your small group leader shouldn't have that authority in your life. Nobody should. And that's what I want for you. And that's honestly what I want for the next thousand years of the Christian faith. I know it's a big goal. So what's God inviting you into today? I hope, first of all, that God's inviting you to leave behind kind of unhealthy expectations of the Bible. I hope that God's inviting you to find freedom in this tension between holy and human, that it can be both and, that Jesus can be divine and human, right? That there is this reality, we can understand these things and live in that tension. And I hope you hear God saying, hey, I wanna just encourage you to keep Jesus as the norm of the Bible. That when you read it, when you encounter it, when you study it, when you look at it, you say, I'm gonna filter everything through what I understand about Jesus who is living, who's present, who can guide and direct me. And when I see a conflict, I go to Jesus. I go to Jesus. Okay, we made it. Big, deep breath. Big, deep breath. Will you do me a favor and just close the talk notes, put the pen down, put the connect card away, all those things. Unless you're writing a big check, just put the pen down. I'm honest, right? You just keep writing if that's, if that's in your heart. But listen, just can we just, I know we're, we're, we got a volunteer lunch and all those things, but 
Can we just let this kind of be our anthem as we finish this moment, this song, Christ is enough for me. That Jesus is enough for me. That Jesus is living and alive and, and, and nothing can really replace that Jesus, not even our sacred texts. And I love that this song goes into this very old chorus that says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Probably 10 years ago, I started wrestling with this language that I was taught and I was raised to follow the Bible. And I realized that that is a terrible idea. <laughs> it's an absolutely horrible idea because you can't follow the Bible. You just can't. It scares people and nobody does. And even people who say they do, they don't follow the Bible. They certainly follow parts of the Bible. And I follow parts of the Bible, but I'm a wholehearted commitment to try and follow Jesus. Jesus. And so I'm going to hold my text as sacred and I'm going to read them and I'm going to immerse myself in them and I'm going to study them and I'm going to understand what do they have to say for us today as people trying to bring the vision of God's just and fair world to being the kingdom of God as Jesus would call it. But I want to do it in a healthy way. I want to believe like Jesus did. So just enjoy this song. Maybe go ahead and stand and you might want to sing along. You might just want to listen. You might want to sit. You can sit too. What do I care? God doesn't care. It doesn't matter to me, but there you go. So we'll sing this together and then I have our blessing for the day. Do me a favor and lift your hands up. Receive the blessing today. If you're at home, you can do the same. Unless you're sitting in a love seat and you'd smack the person next to you, then don't do that. But we breathe you in, God. You sustain us and you hold us. You give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And we do believe that a beautiful treasure has been passed to us in what we call the Bible. That we would not use it to steal and kill and destroy as some have done, but we would use it to bring life to the fullest as a reflection of the living word, Jesus. So may God bless you and keep you this week. And as you consider the priority and place of scripture in your life, may God fill you with a desire to believe like Jesus. And may you not be anxious or fearful as you explore the holiness and the humanness of our sacred texts. And for those of you who have experienced the weaponization of the Bible, if your interaction with scripture has led you to trauma, may you find hope and healing and seeing how Jesus' beliefs disarmed and disempowered spiritually abusive leadership in his time. And for those of us in spiritual leadership, may we humbly come before God, examining our motives and how we use and teach scripture. And may scripture for all of us be an inspired source of encouragement, hope, and guidance as we seek to follow Jesus and his path of peacemaking. And may you, find hope and comfort in this great mystery that our sacred texts are both holy and human at the same time. Have an amazing week. Amen. We have big vision for peacemaking and bringing hope to Northern Colorado and beyond. And we need your help to make that happen. Every one of us has unique talents and skills to offer. And there are many opportunities for you to get involved with a volunteer team. There's opportunities for you to serve even on a remote team. 
Go to crossroadscolorado.com slash volunteers to view the opportunities and sign up. You can also check the box on the connect card and I will link that in the show notes. And finally, thank you to everyone for regular giving to support the work of our church. Our giving goes toward making our 10-year peacemaking vision a reality. We also know that the regular practice of financial generosity is an important part of our own spiritual health. Well, we want to make generosity simple and convenient. So to give by mobile app, you can text the word Crossroads to 833-270-1344. You can also choose to find us on Venmo or go to crossroadscolorado.com slash give. Well, again, keep your eyes out for all that's happening through our feed e-newsletter, the website, our social media accounts. We love connecting with you in all these different ways this week. Thank you for being an inclusive and generous part of the Crossroads Network of Peacemakers. Have a great week.